This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTag Games Podcast, your only source of transdimensional explorations and modern supernatural versus agents of the government. And other weird stuff. Hey, this is Bruce Sheffer. And this is Blix. And we're going to do a special Dragon Con post-recording to talk about the uh, adventurous gaming we did with Bureau 13 and Fringeworthy at Dragon Con 2011. Blix, what games did you actually get into? The only game I got into the whole time I was at Dragon Con was yours, the Meller Infestation in the base. What was the name of that one again? The Meller Assault on Hatsumi Base. Right. Now, you remember why we decided to do this? Because it just had never been done before. Exactly. Uh, Fringeworthy has been out for about 30 years, and uh, we've always told people that the worst possible thing that could ever possibly happen would be if the Meller got loose in Hot City Base, because then Earth would probably be doomed. So we decided, hey, you know, no one's ever told us that they've run this scenario and told us what happened when they tried it. So I said, Dragon Con's a really good opportunity to bring in new players and also to let people experience something that they've never experienced before. Ergo, the assault on uh, Hatsumi Base. So, Blix, tell us about what it's like to play a Meller. Oh, man. I'll tell you what. That was fun. You don't have to worry about any kind of uh, morals or, or, or any you know future problems that will come down the line. You're pretty much unhinged to do whatever you want. And how many players did we have? We had three. Okay. And so uh, we had three identical... Are they Great Meller? Great Meller, yes. Thank you. Uh, we had three un, uh, un, unstoppable, supposedly, Great Meller that had like 40 strengths and 800 hit points. <laughs> well, I think, no, it, it was, <laughs> it was. I think they had a 30 strength, if I remember right, and um, 325 hit points or something. But I mean, it might as well be 800. And I stuck you guys starting off in the isolation ward in Hatsumi base, because I reasoned that in the beginning days, and we were talking about, you know, maybe a year after exploration had begun, where they still didn't know who the Meller were. At the same time, they had gone out and visited a few worlds and everybody knew who team one was. And you guys were replacing team one. Yes. I remember I was playing Ed Powers. Okay. And we also had Cosgrove from the Victorians. Right. Right, that was the guy, um, well, I can't remember his name, but he was the guy that we didn't know. He kind of just showed up at the convention. Right. No, the bike, the bicycle messenger guy, That's right? right. Yeah, uh, that was Mike played him. And he was a lot of fun. So we had three male characters all playing, you know, uh, in isolation as members of Team One. Gordon Conrad was the name of the bicycle messenger. Right. 
And so you were all in there and you were trying to escape because back in the original things, they had a lot of fear that the fringe world explorers were going to bring back diseases from the fringe path. So the first thing they did when you came back to hot sea bases, they threw you in isolation for about 40 hours, see if you started showing a fever or any strange blood work or things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which meant that these guys had to, even though they were able to pass an initial uh, blood work exam by catching certain amounts of blood from the original bodies of the Team One members that they had assimilated. They knew they weren't going to be able to keep it up forever. I mean, an ultrasound and some of the other scanners that they might use later on would defeat their uh, Meller camouflage. So they had to get out. So they, they managed to do so, and then the carnage started. Right. I mean, we basically decided that we were going to do a frontal assault because the situation, the way the room was set up, it, it really wasn't making for um, an easy way to, you know, to get out without anybody knowing, a covertly way of getting out. Mm -hmm. So the one guy used his crystal to, to burn a hole through the back wall, and then he went out one side of the containment center, and then Mike and I... We went through, just went right through the plastic tube that you know that people came in through the isolation area. We just tore through it. The carnage just started. You know, we we attacked the two guards and sliced them up. You know, in, in no time. Mike and I drew fire for several rounds while we were fighting. You know, just fighting all these different people. You just pretty much just walked into their gunfire and took them down. Oh yeah, yeah. And you got three hundred some hit points, and their weapons were doing. I don't know what, 2d8 maybe? And you have damage reduction and regeneration. Right. So by the time we finished finishing them off, any damage we took has been healed. Right. Or at so. least it would be healing soon. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the most damage you took in any of your combats was like 100 hit points of damage. So you still had – that was only a quarter of your total hit points. Right. And that was just because I think they threw in a bunch of grenades. Grenades seem to be a really good weapon to use against Meller because they have a lot of high resistances, and, and they do make good, great you know, saving throws against that kind of damage, but they still take half damage. They still were taking a lot of damage because of that. It was just really wild playing them because it's almost like you're playing a superhero mm -hmm. or a supervillain because you're like super strong, and you can heal, and you've got armor, and you've got like a million hit points, and the, the damage they were doing, I, I think it was like... It was like 2d6. No, it was 1d6 for a claw, but you added 10 to it because of the strength bonus. Right. And you could do a claw, claw, bite. So that's, you know, you're doing d6 plus 20, d6 plus 20. And then the bite was like 3d6. 4d10. I'm sorry, 4d10, right? And that's plus 10. So, you know, if you hit with all three of them, you're doing a minimum of 30 and then 4 and then 5 and then 6, you know. So you, you do a minimum of 46 points of damage. Right. Until right, and that's a minimum. Yeah, and, and most people, most characters there, they weren't real heroes. They mm -hmm. were just competent, you know, whatever. So they didn't have more than fifty hit points. Right. So it was it was pretty much if you hit with all three hits, which was pretty easy to do because they're good at doing that. You pretty much take somebody out in one attack. You were pretty much tearing through the ranks of security guards that were coming to try to deal with this uh, breach in containment. Mm hmm. Yeah. Tell me how well you thought the uh, whole Meller impersonation ability worked. Oh, I, I think it worked really well. I think in, in a lot of ways it's balanced. The impersonation ability, 
I, I like the fact that it takes D6 minutes once you're able to drain the person. Having to wait that amount of time means you have to survive long enough or stay out of sight long enough before you, you can make that change. Because we took this one guard over and then we had to hide out until you know, the, the time passed so that we could come out as those people that we had just taken over. Right. And, and I didn't really think that you really used the original forms I gave you, the ones of T1, as, as effectively as you could have. No, probably you, didn't. You already came in able to be those people. So one of the things I thought you were going to do, which you didn't do, was one of you was going to turn into a Meller, and the others were going to go, oh, my goodness, what's happened? What is that thing? And then he tears out to one side, and then you get to play, you know, oh, you know, Team 1, we're going to go get him. Don't worry. And, you know, and right. instead just all turned into Meller and, but people who weren't on the know, who hadn't been informed that the team, the entire team one had been compromised, they were still going to be very susceptible to you suddenly changing into that form. Hey, it's Gordon. You know, come on, help me. I need this help over there. Something terrible is happening over in squad so and so. Right. But you guys still did a very good job. Your ability to bluff was excellent. You said the right things at the right time to send people in all the different directions that they really didn't want, shouldn't have been at for the the defense of the of the base. Right. We did manage to get out with forms that we could blend in once we got to the, one of the other bases. I think they were heading towards McMurdo. Right, which is the nearby U.S. military base. Convention game is only four hours, so by the end of the four hours, we basically wrapped it up as uh, two of us. We did lose one. We'll talk about that in a second. Right. But uh, the two of us that got out uh, as, other care, as other people, people were impersonating, would have made it to McMurdo and probably would have been able to make it all the way back to the mainland, given enough time, or you know, gotten anywhere we needed to go without anybody being wise to it. Right, they definitely had a reasonable shot at it. But let's talk about the guy who got a, uh, the guy who did not make it out. Right, this was the guy who was playing Cosgrove, one of the Victorians. Playing kind of interesting. He was going around. He he found out where the where the French were the quarters were because he I think he was using the, the detect Fringeworthy with his card or with his crystal, card, with yeah, his, with his crystal. So. He was finding the other French worthy and killing them. I'm not really sure why he was doing that. I think he was trying to take their forms. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, these okay. were forms that nobody knew that he was taking. Ah, uh, okay. And that way, if he wanted to escape back into the ice tunnel and into the fringe path, he could. Right. He was really embracing his his mellerness too. Yeah, he was. He really was gleeful when he was like, you know, hey, what what's going on? And he's like, I'll show you. <laughs> and he was right. just turned into a meller and just rip him to bits. Right. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is is that, you know, he came across a key gag and the key gag realized what he was and he said, he's like, no, no, I'll help you. I, I'm your friend. I'm your brother. Right. And he was right. The key gag would have helped him. Would have helped us a lot. But, I mean, he, the, the, the other player didn't know that. You know, rightfully so, because Meller don't generally know that the Kegak were the ones that, that made them the way they are. So, you know, that kind of played out the way it probably should have. But it would have been really cool if he, if he had taken him up on it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, his next one was the Slarg. And that turned out differently than I because I, I was kind of hoping that the, that the slug would bite him. Or, as you said, Bruce, maybe he would take the slug's form and then be compelled to bite himself. Right. You know, he got he got lucky. He killed the slug in like one hit or something like that. Yeah, he, he, I really didn't have a chance even to have the slug react 
because we've discussed this before. The, the slog is really backed into the corner and has nowhere else to go, and there's no possibility of escape. That the slog will try to defend itself, and its most likely defense would be to try to bite him. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, that you know, he he wouldn't be playing a great meller; he'd be playing an old meller. Now working on the side of Hatsumi Base to try to stop the other great meller. See, now that would have been interesting. It would have been kind of cool to watch that play out. I wanted to do that. That's, that's why I said it would be nice to have been able to t- uh, test it a little bit more. Because having gone through that, I really think that I should have forced that. I should have made that happen no matter what. Because right. then his character would have a complete reversal. How much? How interesting for the player to suddenly have to switch in, mid, in, in, in mid-session and, and, and play for the other team. Right. Now, that, that would have been cool. Yeah. It would have been good for... Me and Mike. Yeah, he would have been screwing your characters over big time. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it would have been interesting. Um, All right. And, and of course, he died because he tried to do that one time too many. Yeah, explosives guy. Yeah, the one of the Fringeworthy was uh, a big-time explosive expert and had been uh, uh, working devising his own explosives in his room. So when the Meller decided to try to take him out... He basically said, oh, well, here, let me drop this dead man switch I was holding. And boom, big chunk of Hatsumi base you know, gets crumpled and blown out by the explosion. Now, mind you, that helped the rest of us, mm-hmm. ultimately. I mean, me and Mike, because yeah. it created a really intense distraction on their end. It right. kept them from being able to focus and uh, you know, focus on what we were doing. It probably might seem to the player maybe a little too exodus machina, but at the same time, you know, he had chewed his way through three major NPCs at that point. Literally, it was kind of like you know, sooner or later, you're you know, you're going to run into somebody who can take you, or right. at least is willing to to go out with you, and that is what exactly what happened. Right. You know, there you know, he was a heroic character. He did have lots of hit points, but it didn't change anything. He knew he was gonna die. He knew he couldn't escape this thing. So the only thing he could do would be to try to take it out with him. So that was what happened, you know. Yep. So that that was the end of him. <laughs> yeah. And that's and one of the main reasons you guys were able to escape was because so much damage had been done to Hatsumi base at that point that they told everybody to evacuate. Right. And so you got in, got in with all the other people that were running across the ice to McMurdo while bad things were happening back at Hatsumi, and uh, that's where we called the game. Another thing that would have worked against us severely is if Hatsumi or, or Idet had ever had an encounter with the Meller. Mm-hmm. Heard about the Meller, but they didn't know who they were or what they were. Right. It was the, the early rumors of, of bad creatures, the great enemy of the Tamalern in the Commonwealth, the Meller. So they didn't know what they looked like. So when it happened, they you know it was like, well, they still didn't know. They just had to treat them as some strange monster that had suddenly appeared. Right. Yeah. So that, that helped a lot. Okay. And uh, the other adventure that I ran at DragonCon was a Bureau 13 adventure, which was the uh, one of the original uh, adventures in Stalking the Steel City, the Pittsburgh Ripper adventure. And I discovered when I ran it, uh, and I was able to run that uh, up at Gen Con, 
the scenario is not a, a convention scenario. It runs too long. And so when we got to a part where normally we would let them, you know, do a lot more investigating and things like that and, and, and not actually, you know, have a chance to, to meet up with the, uh, the big bad in the story, I instead put a huge, you know, line of bread, uh, breadcrumbs right over to where he was. Right. So that they could immediately then turn around and follow it and then spend the rest of the session taking him down if they could. And right. they were successful both times. So, you know, this is a case where if you want to use an established scenario in a convention, sometimes you have to make some choices. You have to make some modifications in order to make it run within the four hours and be satisfying to the players. And right. they all like the ending where they were able to take out the Pittsburgh Ripper. Okay, I mean, like overall, would you say, was that a... a- I thought it was very successful. I thought that they they all took different directions in the initial part where they were trying to run down the initial information. And then I basically did the big reveal so they could run over and, and follow the breadcrumb trails. The first group went in and, and uh, attacked them very effectively, maybe by accident, by using area of effect weapons as gas and stuff like that, that the Pittsburgh Ripper is not immune to. He's he's pretty much immune to most weapon fire because he regenerates so quickly and he's immune to all kinds of shock and stuff. And he runs over and does all kinds of attacks, but they hit him, the, the first group, pepper spray, massive pepper spray. Right. And he's blinded and screaming and his lungs are on fire and he's, he doesn't know where they are. And so they, they just started opening up with, with shotguns and machine guns on that point until finally he went down. Hmm. The second group, not so effective in that regard. They basically jumped in, confronted him. He killed one of them outright. The second one he was busy beating on, but hadn't succeeded in killing him when the the last Asian showed up with a weather maker. Hmm. And the weather maker is the big energy beam, man-carried energy beam weapon that's stored in the RV. Nine-foot by nine-foot area blast. Yelled at him saying, come get me, you, you know, you monster. And so, of course, at this point, after killing two people, the Ripper was feeling pretty hot stuff. And he jumps up on top of the train car he'd been hiding in and boom, hmm. nothing but vapor. Wow. And that was the end for that. They were all pretty happy with that ending. It was very satisfying with her. It's, uh, all in all, I, I would say it's a success. I'd really like to be able to do a lot more sessions. And next year, we're planning on b- concentrating on the Savage Worlds version of these games. Yes. So we're going to be running a ton of Savage Worlds sessions. Yeah, I think I'm going to be pretty busy with the Savage Worlds stuff. So all you Savage World guys out there, you be ready to come join our sessions because we're going to have a lot of them for you. All right. Well, thanks, Blix, for uh, stopping in and, and uh, helping me with this post-DragonCon uh, uh, breakdown of the, the, the uh, Fringeworthy and uh, uh, Bureau 13 sessions. And uh, I'm looking forward to playing with you because, you know, you're, you're a lot of fun to play with, Blix. And, and I hope you enjoyed it when I was in your game <laughs> last year at DragonCon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a really good time. And, um, you know, next year... Next year when we get down there, we'll have to do a lot more of it. You know, we're going to have to do some more crossover, make sure that, that we get in each other's games, especially since we're going to be doing the Savage World stuff and pushing that. And it should be a good time. Maybe even we can get – if we can find some other uh, Savage Worlds producers there, uh, it would be really cool to get them in into our games too, convince them to come over and jump in. Well, I think that a lot of the people who do other Savage Worlds games are going to – and we've been talking to them about – 
put, you know, doing Fringeworthy in their games. And I think we might be able to get a few of them interested in playing in our games for the sole purpose of seeing how they might play out in their game sessions. Right, right. Should be a good time. So I hope to see a lot more of that. So, all right. Well, thanks, Blix. And we're going to go on now to our next segment, uh, which is the finale of the uh, Mature Hardwired Hinterland campaign. This is our third segment on hardwired hinterland and how to set up a campaign and run it. We've talked about the zero campaign. We've talked about the introductory campaign. We've even given a few sample campaigns starting there. This time, what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, you have a number of mature players. You know, these aren't necessarily people who've just started playing the game. They're seasoned role players. So we want to bring them in to Hardware Hinterland and not have to start them off at the, okay, you just washed up on the shore of New Akron. Go from there. We want to actually bring them in in a mature campaign with mature players and also mature characters. But the problem is, is that since this is a game that doesn't have the advertising budget of D&D or uh, World of Darkness... And it's using a, a, a setting and background that, well, is totally new and unique. Right. So you may not have heard a whole lot about it or had ever played anything quite like it. So we wanted to try to help cushion that GM who was trying to start a campaign in this particular world without having to totally toss him to the wolves, so to speak, and make him start from the very beginning with his players. Okay, so Little Kiev... I looked at this place, and it was like early 1900 Russia. It's about the most boring place I could imagine. But then they've got this huge silver mine. So guess what they've got? they got air pirates trying mm -hmm. to hit shipments, leaving the place. That's something that you could do is provide support for those shipments. Organized crime is going to be trying to get in there. So this quiet little early 1900 Russia could actually have a really deep, nasty undercurrent. Mm-hmm. Bruno's Vineyards, it's, it's mostly known for its really, really good wine, but it's also the location of the Kennerman Institute, where they, they bring in all kinds of exotic animals from all over the Emerons and study them. Well, what if one of them gets free? Can you say Jurassic Park? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of other things. Can you say Die, Monster, Die? Let's say, okay, all your guys are there. You work for the, the Ketterman College of Agriculture and Animal Husbandry. You go out and collect these animals. You had said earlier, give them a DC-3. Well, this Ketterman College is going to have them because they're going to want their people to go out and go to the other environs and explore and right. bring stuff back. So this would be a fantastic starting point for a group to have a purpose to work for this college. While you're doing that, you could also be doing side quests to go after the specific goals of the individual uh, player characters. Oh yeah, or, oh yeah. Or, or some, you know, some guy from New Old New York gets an idea. He just saw a movie 
that was playing at a theater. And he says, you know what? They got one of those in the Kierman Institute. They have a giant ape. Oh, for the he, A's, yeah. He, they're going to try to move the giant ape, which is like about 12 feet tall or bigger, and bring him to New York to celebrate King Kong Day. It could happen. And you know how it's going to end. They're going to end up having to pay the Kierman Institute for one lost ape. But, yeah. And, of course, you know, maybe everything's fine. Maybe the ape is going there, he's sedated and stuff like that. But as I, I mentioned, there could be all kinds of groups in uh, new old New York that, you know, don't want this to fail. They want to embarrass the local government so that some other political party can, can make some political hay. So they go, they're going in there and they're breaking the ape free or they're, you know, sticking amphetamines into his uh, monkey chow so that when he wakes up, he's going to be all amped up. There's all kinds of things that can go on. So what could seem like a fairly straightforward adventure could turn into something much more complicated. Somehow, I don't see transporting a 12-foot ape to New York City for King Kong Day as being a straightforward adventure. But, you know. Well, isn't that how you'd sell it? All you got to do is he's, he's sedated. All you got to do is just, uh, you, know, put him, you know, put him inside your, uh, your DC whatever. And uh, or it would probably require a special, uh, a special plane for this. You'd probably have to take it in a dirigible. Oh, yeah. or, or just a couple of balloons and we're hanging from the balloon. You just got right, but you, balloons. Well, okay. But you, you're bringing him along and then you're flying escort on the big dirigible. Do air pirates come? Is there a hard water hinterland version of PETA? Yeah, but it's, it's gorillas. Instead of, uh, Who would have something against uh, a giant ape being exploited this way yeah. and decide to go and try to break him free while he's over some environment someplace? It's the Gorilla Liberation Gorillas. <laughs> oh. Everybody always treats all those chimpanzees or apes as being such friendly guys, you know, the ones with a capital A that are intelligent. But, you know, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, they may see this guy as, as a sort of a symbol for them. They don't want to see him exploited in any way. That's right. Yeah. Sitting there, you know, with the berets going, free my simian brothers. That's right. <laughs> don't you be yeah. treating him like that. And actually, it does bring a good point because we've been talking about playing human characters. You don't have to play a human character. You can play an animal character in this scenario. Right. That's true. That would involve even more prep on the GM's part because, okay, we all know how to play a human. You got to give them, you, I think you might have to copy a couple more pages for that particular play saying, okay, these are what the, the animal, capital A animals are like here on. In the hinterland. Here you go. Here, you know, four pages on this. Sooner or later, you're going to do it, right? You're going to go to Noram. Yeah. Because it's the place where all those super high-tech uh, items that will work everywhere come from. Okay. Versus magic cost where, you know, they, the magic goes away as soon as you leave the place. Uh, Noram items work everywhere. And they're super high-tech. And they can do pretty much anything, assuming you get a right one. But, of course, there's all kinds of mutants and cyborgs and robots, mutated animals as well, and just bad bad technology gone awry, running around all over the place on this environ. A good way to describe what could happen on Noram, if you have seen Avatar and the battles like between the giant, like, dinosaur-type 
creatures and the robots that the corporation use. Yeah. That would be a very good example of something you might find in Noran. Oh, that could easily happen. Sure. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, of course, the reason that people go there, one of the main things they're trying to find are what are called templates. And templates are devices that you just push raw material through and it turns, it drops a finished product out the bottom side of it. And some of them are programmable with multiple things. But uh, the point is, is that if you made a really good find of a template, you could literally disrupt one of the, uh, another Environ's economy. Uh, New Pittsburgh, I, they found a, essentially a giant template that they shove stuff through and it produces big, huge girders of steel and aluminum and stuff like that, which is the basis for their entire economy. This thing is running 24-7. If they just dig out raw ore and shove it through the thing and collect the finished product on the other end. Somewhere out there is a template that someone's using to produce all the spam that people keep on the market. Right. So the, the point is, if you found another one or something that does one of those things even better, then you've now created a competing market. And all that, as I say, follow the money, all those people that are rich and powerful because of those particular templates that already exist are going to take a very jaundiced view of you, you showing up with another one like that. So the status quo always wants to maintain itself. You trying to get rich that way could cause all kinds of, of issues for the players. As the Oracle said in the second Matrix movie, what do men with power want? More power. Your players come in with a, a template to do something. Oh, oh, I could see problem right here. Let's say a template that makes lightning crystals. Wow. Oh, you, Ooh. The whole there with Anson. Oh, he have you hunted all throughout the hinterland. You will never know a moment's peace if they have that. Right. It doesn't make just any old lightning crystal. It makes top quality, premium lightning crystals. If it makes a pissant crystal, it's still making crystals. Anson is not going to be happy about that. Just That's true. Somebody other than him. Yeah, what if it, yeah. What if it made a crystal that uh, could only get rid of the mass of, let's say, something that weighed about two, 300 pounds, but it got rid of 100% of it. Now you got people who can fly. Oh, yeah. Or at least 99.9 .9 for all, you know, but all intents and purposes, you're weightless. Yeah, and just put a small engine on there, uh, an alcohol-burning engine. Yeah, you have jetpacks, fine. Yeah, or you could just put yeah. slap on a pair of wings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, glider. Yeah, even then, still, that's, you know, that's still an advantage in, in some forms of combat. Oh, yeah, Anson would just be, oh, Livid. never a moment's rest. Yeah, right. you would be sleeping with one eye open if you had that thing. Right. So anything that you can imagine uh, that's technological can be found in Noran. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and, but of course, getting it out is where the real adventure is because everything on Noram, it's just it's just a walking war zone. Oh yeah, uh, there's lots and lots of adventures there for a GM if he wants to just spend some time there trying to go after one MacGuffin after another. Put a big enough price tag on it. There's going to be a lot, not only is your players going to be trying to get there, but of course there'll be a lot of Competing NPCs who are willing to cut their throats to do the same thing. Yeah, Bruce, I don't yeah. think we want to do it in, the, in this one, but we some, at some point in the world we got to find out from Richard what the hell those boxes are on Noram. This is on page forty-seven of Hardwired Hinterlands, folks, on the places of interest for Noram. 
There are 12 redlined boxes scattered yeah. throughout the environment. Uh, one through four are suburbs. Five through seven is a city. Oh. Eight through 12 is a mega city, which would be like a megalopolis. What do you see that? It's right there on the map of Noram. It's up. In, it's in red print on the upper left-hand corner of the map of Noram. Ah, uh, you know, I'm, running, I'm I'm looking at a pre, uh, at a pre-release version of hardware hardware. <laughs> okay, yeah, I got mine. I believe at a PenguinCon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, the Mega City eight through twelve. Yeah, that's basically like your Megalopolis, like your anime-type Tokyo. Yeah. Like a- oh, an Arcopolis. Yeah, it has buildings 3,000 feet high, and they're all connected. Oh, like, yeah, let's see. Uh, let me give a good example here um, for anime. Bubblegum Crisis Tokyo 2040. I just saw that anime. That would be a prime example of what that mega city would be like. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And as it goes out further and further, you have just the regular city, and then the suburbs. Even then, it's still going to be, I'll use D20 parlance here, maybe PL678 technology. Yeah. And yeah. it's been wiped out. So, yeah, even just salvage, coming back, throwing a dead robot in the back of your DC-3 and taking it back to New Akron or almost Canada, you just gave a whole industry of people wanting to reverse engineer it. Just oh, to yeah, find oh, out yeah. what it can make. Yeah, yeah. And and so, yeah, this place, yeah, you could get a lot of stuff, even the stuff that doesn't work. But you're going you're gonna to be on your toes trying to get it out of there yeah. because of all the things that's there. Right, because there are all robots that are there that are trying to salvage the remains of other robots. And they're not going to want you taking their, their, their salvage. Yeah, that's right. Step off my Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Uh, in addition to robots, there's also weapons. There's engines that can be used on planes. Uh, there's power sources, generators of various kinds. These are always in demand everywhere. Oh, yeah. Of course, there's betas also. Some, some of these templates can produce people. So I found IceCap very interesting because it's where they put 3,000 of the worst criminals in the hardware hinterland, and I'm like, okay, is this as decided by <laughs> by, by uh, Hinterpool? I mean, who decided that these were the worst criminals and they had to be placed on this really, really nasty place? What did these people do? I mean, you know, normally the, the punishment is exiled. Yeah. To be here, I mean, one, do you actually want them together? The, the old problem with supervillains in superhero games, do you want to put all those supervillains together in the same prison? Well, if it's basically, let's see, we uh, real quick, this is an ice cap a thousand feet thick with a few mountaintops sticking out to hinder navigation. There is a prison here for the most dangerous criminals in Hinderland called Zero. It is tunneled into the ice and holds nearly 2,300 felons. Right. They are going to be given bare minimal supply to survive, and you, you're putting them together, but they're going to, I'm sure that those who dump them there are going to give them just what they need to survive. You're not going to be giving these guys, like, anything that can be made into a weapon. And, of course, in a prison, a society is going to be formed in and of itself anyways, because we don't know how long this society has been there. You, you're going to have its own culture. It's going to be a very stark, nasty, brutal culture, but it's going to be a culture nonetheless. In prisons, you have pecking orders. Of course, you know, like in a modern-day prison, if anything's done to a child, oh, you were at the bottom of the food chain. 
And it would be the same here in Zero, where this entire society will have been built as these people try to survive here. And they're going to be surviving longer because obviously injuries heal. Aging is retarded due to the, the, the very nature of the hinterland itself. It would be interesting in a campaign just to see what that is like, if only for a one-shot adventure. I, yeah, and also the, the poor 300 guards and associate, you know, people who got to watch over them. I mean, they must be rotated out on a regular basis. Otherwise, I'd go stir-crazy there. Yeah, it says two Sub-Zero stations and one prison. So, yeah, there are going to be places you would be realizing, wait a minute, I'm getting transferred to Zero. What did I do wrong where I got this position, you know? Right. And of course, if you did do that, then you might very well be willing to take a bribe and maybe let some plane land and take some people away. Maybe there really aren't 2,300 there. Maybe they only have 2,100 there. And you're, oh, yeah. you know, you're running a uh, underground railroad of getting the worst criminals out of there because someone's willing to pay the freight. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Or there's 2,100. You, you last thing you did a bed check. You're missing three people, but there's no way they can get they could gotten out of there. Do you find the hole that was chewed through the wall of their cell? Well, the last thing I saw you've already kind of covered, and that was Lizard Woods, which is of course where all the di- uh, one of the places a lot of dinosaurs are, and that big game hunting that you talked about mm-hmm. over there for the Ketterman Institute. Oh. You know, that's where a lot of that would be taking place. Oh, yeah. Uh, smaller dinosaurs. Yeah, two biological observation stations have been established here with two more plants. Well, yeah, you're sure that the Ketterman College probably run those, if not like a coalition of, let's say, New Old New York, New Akron, almost Canada. Let's say it's like a joint venture. But you know there's going to be big game hunting going on out here. Oh, yeah, just yeah. private institutes besides governmental ones just going just for, you know— S and G safaris, you know, just okay. Let's go and see if we can bag something. Let's let's bag, let's bag a T Rex. Come on, everybody wants to do that, yeah, right? Well, the fact that you can get away with that, you know, that's a real good way to get fame and fortune in the hinterlands. If hey, this guy bagged a T Rex, right? First of all, everyone's going to back away from him. <laughs> just like yeah, oh, okay. And then, and then they find out how hard it actually is to do that, yeah, and they yeah. back away even further. <laughs> But don't forget, too, though, in the animals with capital A's, uh, there may be more of a joint 2,000 locals. A lot of raptors who are sentient. There could be a couple of T-Rexes who are very intelligent and don't like being considered being prey. I can see it now. You're hunting it, and the, the T-Rex looks down and just goes, no, no, old boy, that won't do. Sorry. <laughs> now we're talking Dinotopia. Yeah, yeah. Right. I recognize that feminine scream of panic anywhere. That would be our <laughs> safari that we sent out. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, that, you know, they, they approach us often says, "We'll give you some of our unintelligent uh, brethren for exchange for some weaponry. We want to make the, the the safaris fair." That's right. The right. To, what was that? The right to arm bears. What? That's yeah. right. <laughs> yes. You come here to hunt us, well, we hunt you. <laughs> yeah. We're either you're either gonna have us for dinner or, or we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have you for dinner or we're gonna have you for dinner. Yeah. I wanna see the stegosaurus with uh you know the mounted twenty millimeter cannon on its back shell. Rock well, on. <laughs> it could happen. 
with the in, uh, inclusion of intelligent animals and so many other things that are in the hinterland, the players are constantly going to be saying, oh, we thought we knew this, but there was something else we forgot about. So that's where the GM gets to have a lot of fun. I would recommend, as we've mentioned before, finding a spot that looks like it'd be interesting for the GM to play and for the characters to spend some time in uh, and use these NPCs that are already listed in the book and some of the conflicts that are already listed or make up your own. Uh, because the hinterland, you know, it doesn't have to stay the way it is in the book. You can always throw in a new element. There could be a regime change. You know, Anson can declare war on an environ and just start strafing and bombing the next environ over. I mean, nothing has to stay exactly the way it is in the source book. Oh yeah, and don't forget there are how many again? How, how many are there again? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen unexplored environs out there that you can put whatever you want. Right. Just on the map. I mean, obviously, yeah. right. these environs right. go on ad infinitum. And also, if you travel high enough into the air, you find some new places. Yeah, you, yes. you find it repeating on the top side. Right. There right. are plenty of environs that you can stick this, that, and the right. other on. You just have to be willing to travel. Right. Well, that's what the GM should do after he's had a little bit of time to uh, get used to the campaign world, is go and start creating his own environs. The first environment I would add myself, New Roma. Of course you would, John. <laughs> I would. Oh, geez, or, yeah. or New Chichen Itza. Excuse me, Gazuntite. What was that? The Mayan environ, Chitnitsa, or the Iroquois homeland. You could put in a Victorian type. Yes, of course. Environment. And if you want to kick it up a couple of notches, Asgard. There you go. Oh, nice. Yeah, the whole Norse Viking with the longboats and yes. Oh. Or Olympus. Yeah, whatever one you want to go with. Yeah. Oh, yes. See, the sky's the limit on what. Because these are all like cultures that have just been snatched throughout various Earths of their histories and just popped on a 200-mile square island. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe there's a reason why people stop believing in the uh, uh, the various Roman and Greek gods, okay, who never seem to answer their prayers anymore. Maybe because they were grabbed and sucked off into the hinterland. Yeah, but unfortunately, the powers only extend to within 200 miles of, of the island they're on, environment they're on. Yeah, well, that may be. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. So here they are, stuck on their own environment. And so, you know, what, what does that mean for your campaign? Hey, that's up for the GM to do. It's mainly North America and some South America. There's, Europe is really under underrepresented in the environs. Where's Paris? Where's London? Where's Lisbon? Whereas, uh, like I said, Rome, both Roma and Rome. Africa. I mean, they're, the desert environment has some Egyptian ruins, but you could have tribal African. You could have Saharan-type cultures. Oh, God, what the name. And I did and oh. I did one on Africa, too. Bedouin. Thank you. Who yeah. knows what's buried oh. under those sands on the desert? And if you want 200 miles of nothing but structure, you have New Angkor Wat. The entire island is one big temple. 
The entire environment is just one big temple, 200 miles across by 200 miles. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, elaborate. Where is that of? What would that be indicative uh, of cultures? Uh, that's Malaysia, yeah. I think. Or you could have a giant boat city. Um, you know, an environment is yeah, nothing yeah. but a big lake, and it's it's covered from one end to the other by people living in boats and people going from boat to boat to boat, and it's just one big giant thing like that. Oh and yeah, there there is an entire culture where they may never even set a foot on dry land. They are born on like a hospital boat. They live on this boat city, and they die, and they're like buried at sea, and they never touch dry land. It's just how the culture would be. So look at what's there. Do the steps that we've suggested and try to start some beginning adventures that really pull all these pieces together so that the players really feel like they're playing characters that were living and breathing before the campaign started. You literally can hit the ground running and, and go on to have a really great time. Okay, so we hope that you'll take the opportunity to create a mature campaign with some of your players, especially if you are uh, seasoned uh, role players who want to not just start another zero-level campaign, but really want to jump in to a campaign where it's already living and breathing before you got there. So try our ideas. If you've got better ideas, please post them at TriTagGamers.com in our forums or on our Facebook uh, group or even on our Yahoo groups at uh, uh, groups.yahoo.com. Ah, uh, yes, tritagsystems.podbean.com under the entry. Yeah. You can leave a comment after every one, and we're glad to have you listening to us, and we hope that you found this interesting and useful. And if you have any additional suggestions for us as far as doing this, we would love to hear from you. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. license 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The Tri-Tech Podcast is wholly owned by Tri-Tech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.